Welcome back. I am excited to introduce our guest for today is none other than friend of the show, Sam Callahan. Sam, welcome back to the show, buddy. How are you doing? What's up, fellas? Thanks for having me on. Happy to be I here. Also, I also realized I did not give an intro for those who do not know who Sam is. A, you're doing Bitcoin Twitter wrong. B, Sam works over at Swan Bitcoin as a Bitcoin analyst. How else would you describe yourself other than the voice of Corey Clipstein? <laughs> Well, Corey's his own man, so I don't know if we'd say that. But I'm a Bitcoin analyst, man. So I'm always I'm a, I'm a thread boy. I'm always doing analysts, writing a lot. I do a lot of the research at Swan. So a lot of the shows, I'm kind of working in the background, doing research for them, and then I do a lot of writing for our private clients. And I enjoy it, man. So that's kind of what I do. Well, I want to start off very simply asking you, what is your definition of a recession? Because at this point, I have no idea what a recession even is. Man, that's a good question. My definition of a recession is probably just in general an economic contraction. So you'd have slowing growth, job losses, pretty much typical things that you would see. I think I also consider a recession from a more economic behavioral standpoint of people starting to tighten their spending, getting worried about their finances at home. And so you have this shift in consumer behavior, which leads to further depreciation in asset prices, as well as decreased economic activity, which leads to more job losses. So it's kind of like this cycle that happens. And so traditionally, it was two consecutive cycles of negative GDP growth or two consecutive quarters, excuse me, but they just changed that on us. So I think it is important to look at multiple metrics when you're considering whether we're in an economic recession or not, but certainly growth is an important factor. And uh, we are in currently as traditionally defined a, a economic contraction. <laughs> so that's kind of what I would say. If, if only we can get you to maybe say this publicly so that the world can finally hear it. Who knows? I want to, you brought up an excellent thread last week and, and you bring up the jobs reports here. Can you talk a little bit about this thread, what you're paying attention to in jobs numbers? Like what is the jobs report that you're paying attention to? Because there are so many different employment numbers that get thrown into our faces. Yeah. And I think that's actually the way to do it. I think you need to take like a holistic approach and look at all the different job metrics. Now, what you'll hear, hear lately is the payrolls number that really beat a lot of estimate estimations last Friday. It's what you're going to hear the White House talking about. It's what you're going to hear the Fed talking about because it was a really good number. But if you look at all of the different measures of employment, it shows a weaker labor market than maybe what the payrolls numbers suggest. And so when I when I look at the labor market and the data that comes from it, I look pretty deeply into how these numbers are derived. And so the thread was really looking at how the payrolls and the unemployment rate are are measured and how they how they come to be. And they're really based on these surveys. And I think there's a lot of problems with how the data is derived and how the numbers are calculated. And it leads a lot of leeway for these officials to do a lot of monkey business in the background to basically pump these numbers up when they want to and also pump them down when they want to. And so it can be easily manipulated because of these adjustments to their statistical models that are really nebulous. And so that's kind of what I look at in the labor. We can go into more detail, but... No, let's let's go down this rabbit hole if you, if you'll entertain us. I mean, one of the things that I like to pay attention to is the growth or loss of jobs in the retail sector 
as well as white collar employment. And to me, seeing a decline in white collar employment while an increase in blue collar jobs as well as retail style, retail and hospitality jobs, like that signals to me that there is a turnover and churn in employment that is driving wages lower and in turn bad for the economy. Am I crazy? What are your thoughts on just that dynamic there? No, I think that's right. I think I think you have to consider like who's actually on the ground doing a lot of the economic activity instead of pushing paper in these white collar jobs. Now, in terms of what's been going on lately, since March, there's been a huge divergence between a lot of these labor market metrics. And the payrolls has been indicating that jobs have been created every single month up and to the right. While as these other metrics like labor force participation rate or the household survey, which is another uh, survey of unemployment, they're showing the opposite. They're showing basically flatlining and even decreases in jobs. And so these two metrics are both supposed to measure employment within the economy, but they're measuring, they're coming out with completely different things. So basically, which one's telling the true story, right? And so when you look into these payrolls specifically, which it came out at 528,000 jobs were created last month. And so it beat all these kinds of expectations. But when you look at the survey, it's based off 161,000 businesses. And it basically tries to guess how many jobs were created and how many of their payrolls increased. Now, what people don't realize is there's this adjustment called the birth death factor. And the birth death factor tries to guess how many jobs were created or destroyed in the last 30 days by new businesses or businesses that closed. And the way it kind of guesstimates this is it looks at previous year's tax filings. And if you just think about how crazy that is because of how rapidly changing economic conditions are, they calculate this adjustment by looking at previous years and basically say, oh, okay, last, last June in 2021, we had this many jobs created by new businesses. So this year, it must be similar around that. And of course, they revise it later on when they actually get the corporate tax filings from this year. They usually revise nine months later. And so they'll come back and they'll revise the number back down to what was actually accurate at the time. But they use the forecast number now to pump the payrolls number up. And so this last adjustment of the birth death factor, which I would call complete bullshit, it was the sixth highest in the last 20 years. And the April one was the second highest adjustment in the last 20 years. And so we're led to believe that new businesses were created in the last 30 months in this macroeconomic environment, and 309,000 jobs were created from these new businesses that are completely phantom made up, guessed by these statistical models, when in reality, we're seeing a lot different picture on the ground. We're seeing increased news of layoffs seemingly every day. And so when, when the data doesn't seem to match what your eyes and ears are hearing and seeing on the ground, you shouldn't question your instincts and your gut. You should question the quality of the data. And this adjustment, if you take out the 309,000 jobs that were created from this adjustment and added to the payrolls number, you would get a number much closer to the household number. And so all these people read this headline number and say, oh, it's great. We're not in a recession. Look at all these jobs. But they don't consider how these surveys are derived and how they're constructed and these questionable adjustments. And just one more thing about this birth death factor. In periods of 
where the business cycle is turning and we're kind of entering a recession, that's when this birth death factor is really doesn't capture what's actually happening because it usually overestimates how many jobs are being created and underestimates how many businesses are going out of business. And so it typically overestimates the jobs when, when we're entering a recession. And this is historically what's been shown since it's been implemented some 20 years ago. And so that's kind of the big thing is like very important to understand look past the headline number and, and understand that there's a lot of funny business going around with how these numbers are derived. And these officials can basically pull out these adjustments out of thin air and push the narrative that they want. And what they wanted to push was that the economy is not in a recession, that it's stronger as the Fed tries to navigate a soft landing. And so that's, that's kind of what I was looking at in this thread. I think the, the last part of that is so important. The fact that historically speaking, this number does a really bad job of in the moment registering a recession because it literally is not designed to do that. It would, in theory, if it was just, it will continue to progress higher because the economy looked like it was going higher until it eventually falls off. This is almost, this is, a whole year behind the curve. So this number feels almost irrelevant. And it's funny that this is something that they still propel forward to pay attention to. What are, like, can we talk a little bit just about the general unemployment number and like the initial jobless claims? Because we're starting to see some changes in those, but what is their relevance and importance, if any, in the work and research you're doing? Well, those are more concurrent where, you know, that they get read every week, the initial jobless claims, and they bought them in March. And the last jolts job openings, which has been kind of creeping up over the last several months, it just came out in June and it dropped off very steeply. So we're starting to see weakness there. And if we go back to that birth death factor for a second, like small business optimism and sentiment is currently at 48 years lows. And their main problem was is with inflation. And inflation started to eat into their profit margins. And it really makes sense logically. I mean, labor costs are also the highest since the early 80s because workers are demanding more wages and labor costs are the, the greatest cost for businesses. And so you can see why it's more likely that new businesses are, are laying off people or businesses in general are laying off people and not hiring people. And that's like literally just think more outside the numbers and just like what you're experiencing and seeing on the ground. People are kind of struggling. And then when you also dig, just like what I look at in terms of the job numbers too, is like digging into more of the data where most of these jobs that were created were part-time jobs and multiple jobs. And they weren't full-time. Actually, the full-time number went down. Whereas the multiple jobs and part-time jobs consisted of most of those 528,000 jobs as part of the payroll number. And so what that tells me is that people are struggling with their current salary to keep up with the cost of living. And they're resorting to multiple jobs and part-time jobs. And so to me, it's, it's not as good as it kind of seems on the surface. And, and so those are like the, the things that you have to consider of, of taking a holistic approach of when you look at any of these labor markets. It's, it's really silly to look at one survey number and one headline survey number and think this is, this is really great. Actually, like if, it's not a lie if you believe it. So if you, if you believe that headline number, you're like, oh, we're not, we're not struggling right now. We're not in a recession. Business is great. Small businesses aren't 
at the lowest optimism levels in, in almost 50 years. Like it just doesn't really match. And so I think that's just kind of an important thing to do when, when you're ever looking at these economic data that are pushed by, you know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's a very indirect way. Dude, seriously, I want to live in that reality where like everything is fine and dandy because it must be nice. What about, you know, in the what does the birth-death ratio look like in the context of rising rates? Like what has it done historically as rates go up versus when rates are being suppressed or brought down? Well, I, I you know, I don't think that there's any, it, it, again, it's pulled out of thin air. So uh, it's, it's literally these officials can, can do what they want. For instance, you know, in April it was 349 jobs and then the next month it was minus 15 and, and it just kind of fluctuates. I, I actually haven't looked into the relationship between interest rates and this specific adjustment of this survey. So can't really speak to it, but when I looked through the data and I was picking through, like seeing all of them over the last 20 years, it seems super random which is what you would expect because it is a random ass adjustment that they just kind of throw in there. And so, and it's easily manipulated. So I, I'm not sure exactly the relationship. Maybe it's something I can look into actually. Cool. I definitely expect to see my name as a co-contributor <laughs> for giving you the idea for that. Yeah. Full of shit. Um, a nice chart. <laughs> do you, do you feel like talking about Pelosi a little bit with us? Would you entertain that conversation? Yeah, man. I'll talk about anything with you guys. Because we, we really upset P this morning watching this video of Nancy Pelosi just essentially talking about how wonderful, great, and peaceful China is and how like it's the freest country in the world, which is a, yeah, a newsflash to, to be. Fucking blew my mind. Like, I mean, just the, the, the stance that the U.S. has taken, which is like, you know, Taiwan go fuck yourselves. That is very surprising to me, given the world that we live in and the you know five and seven nanometer chip shortages that are happening everywhere. So strategically, it seems crazy. Although I guess I understand it, but it's disappointing. But then her statements specifically, I don't know if you've seen the, the, the talk she just gave, but we, she basically says verbatim, China is one of the freest countries in the world. And it's totally insane. I did see that, man. I was baffled. I was baffled by it. I mean, <laughs> what can you say? I mean, we all know China and all the issues that that in terms of freedom that they have there, they're basically just consistently surveilled and told what to do. Like I saw I saw clips of what it's like in COVID there where it's like you test and then you're just in this bubble and you, you can't go anywhere. It's like checkpoints every everywhere you try to go in terms of public transportation you got social credit system scoring i don't know what kind of freedom that pelosi believes in or or thinks is free but china to me is the far end of the spectrum in terms of anti-freedom and i think a lot of people would agree with me so i don't know what their agenda is to me i always think about like the geritocracy i think these old people like for the love of god please retire like you're doing a terrible job like terrible job at running our country and you should be you know playing with your grandkids and drinking iced tea and and playing bingo and just chilling out like you're 85 years old like please retire thank you for your service so that was my immediate what i thought when i saw that clip it's just like another example of very out of touch and doesn't really understand the moving parts of of what's going on in the world and I think you can extrapolate that out to most world leaders today. I mean, the only ones that seem to be any kind of intelligent whatsoever 
I mean, admittedly, it seems to be Putin and and maybe the French guy, Mac Macron. He seems to be the only two that like actually think strategically. And I'm not like a backer of Putin or anything, but it just seems like our politicians are so incompetent and, and don't really think through what they say or they're just drunk. <laughs> Why not both? <laughs> yeah. So I want to throw a number out at the two of you guys just to really paint a picture of the geriatrics that have way too much power. There are 166 million Americans who are under the age of 40. And Congress is made up large part by people who are far, far, far older than the age of 40. In fact, it's about 95% are over the age of 40. Like, I'll, I'll give you the answer to the question I want to ask, but like term limits, term limits are the answer to how do we get them to like not spend a whole career in DC just getting rich on ourselves, but like any other ideas? How do we start this revolution? How do we get Nancy Pelosi to just go like kick rocks? And honestly, Mitch McConnell too, for that matter, like cut from the same cloth. Yeah. I, term limits is the obvious answer. And I think, I think what we need is, I think we need young people to get into office, to be honest with you, young people who are intelligent, who would actually want to run for like a political position. I think we're going to have to like infiltrate in order to get those term limits. I think both of those would be really important. Unfortunately, most people who go into politics, like it seems who wants to do that? Like if you're smart, like why the hell would you want to go into politics? So there's a little conundrum there. But I think more and more people are, are starting to understand the importance of that. And like, we can't just leave it up to these people who are incompetent, who are bought and corrupt to, to lead our nation and, and our democracy. So I think you're starting to see uh, more interesting candidates come across, starting to see things like I don't support Andrew Yang, but they're, they're creating a third party, which I'm all for. I think the two party system is very flawed and leads to division. And so just the fact that that's happening, you see in a few Bitcoiners starting to run too, like Bruce Fenton is running and, and a few others. So I think you're going to start to see a shift in, in people be more proactive about, you know, taking the reins and, and dictating policy. And hopefully some adults can come back into the political realm, realm because right now it, it's just, it's just a mess. Right. So that's kind of my two, my takeaway there. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. I just want to let you know that tickets for Bitcoin Amsterdam are on sale now. The largest Bitcoin conference in Europe will take place from October 12th to 14th. More details can be found at b.tc forward slash conference forward slash Amsterdam. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your Bitcoin Amsterdam tickets today. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. P, I don't know if you wanted to chime in here, but I can keep this rabbit hole. No, no, going. Go. I'm, I'm just enjoying. I'm, I'm ready to pounce as soon I'm, as something strikes me. But I'm, I'm going to keep enjoying. going down this this rabbit hole for a second because. Like again, one thing that I've very loudly continued to pound this drum and I will continue to do it is I actually almost disagree in the notion that 
like it's not a good thing for Bitcoiners to necessarily run for public office. I think it's great for us to have conversations with these people, but I worry that unfortunately they will just get corrupted by DC and people with really good intentions or with seemingly great intentions may go in and just see all the power and kind of get corrupted by it. We've seen politicians come out and say something about Bitcoin and it's just that that's it. They just say something about Bitcoin. Like earlier today, we were having a conversation about, what was it, Chris, South Carolina, their treasury like sent out a tweet being like, oh yeah, Bitcoin, thumbs up. And it's just like, no, like they're just trying to cater to us. Like they're trying to cater to an audience and get our attention. And there's a lot of noise out of that space. So how do you try to separate the noise from the signal from DC when it comes to just Bitcoin stuff? Yeah, I'm looking at I'm looking at some of these comments too, and, and I kind of agree with them to be honest with you. Like, it, I've kind of shifted my thoughts a little bit. Like, I used to think like Bitcoin doesn't need government, Bitcoin doesn't need politics, which is it's it, there's some truth to that. And you see a lot of these politicians just kind of trying to create a new angle to get more voters by being pro Bitcoin, and then they go to shitcoinery, and then they actually don't understand Bitcoin. They're just trying to use its brand, basically come off as you know, supportive of new technologies, as well as like the new thing, right? They're like, oh, I'm a, I'm a Bitcoiner and they're just trying to get votes. So it's really hard to tell like who's actually authentic. But I think over time, you can kind of just read people, especially like in terms of like people like Cynthia Lummis, who, who have shown that she actually understands Bitcoin and the Bitcoin ethos. Again, she put out a bill that I don't agree with a lot of what's in it, but it, would I rather have her writing the bill than than one of these other politicians? Like probably. Like like she seems at least like she understands a little bit about what's going on in terms of the central banking system, in terms of the debt, in terms of some of these really really big issues that are plaguing our future. And so I think it's just kind of like reading somebody and not buying their shit at first and making them prove it. So it's proof of work essentially. So I, they need to show me over a long period of time that they mean what they say and they're not just like trying to cater to a new voting base. And so it's proof of work basically. Is there a politician that you think who is like the number one politician that you think is pro good, not pro, but just good for Bitcoin and who's the number one in your power rankings for who is bad for Bitcoin? <laughs> Dude, I, I just, hate all politicians but this is why i, mean, I preface by number. saying like would you entertain this conversation <laughs> i feel like this entire conversation I mean, now has been you trying not to say that and then you're finally just like i can't do it anymore i just I mean, look, come clean. look i'll give Fuck you the you, out and you can just say lummis no well i'll say lummis yeah like i mean she like i like i said i think she's got connections to will cole over at unchained i think i think they're in her ear i think she's well educated on the subject she's she's spoken about it intelligently and i think she's by far the furthest tom ebbers impressed me i forgot his other name i forgot the other one but some of them have spoken out about cbdc's which i do a lot of research about that and i think it's a really important issue and so they've spoken out about cbdc's which is you know one percent of all politicians probably even know what the hell those things are, but they've taken a really strong stance against that. So those are probably like my favorites. I'm trying to think of the other guy. He like retweeted me once, but I think he's in the House Representative. But I can't remember who he is. But the other, so the that, ones that are, sorry, gone. 
I was just going to point out, so for any politicians listening, to end up on Sam's good list, all you need to do is shoot him a retweet. <laughs> yeah. If I, hey, if I'm shitting on the Bank of International Settlements and they retweet that, like, that is kind of a win in my book. Like, absolutely. Uh, talking shit against the IMF and biz, and, and one of us seating, a sitting politician retweets that. I'm all for that. It's a win, um, win. So, those are the, my pro ones, I guess, if I had to pick one. The worst ones seem to be Elizabeth Warren, who, who just seems so misguided and, and, and just corrupted almost. I just wonder what her intentions are, like who's paying her. And, and she's the worst because she just makes assumptions and then takes a hard stance and then writes letters to Fidelity for like put, including Bitcoin in, in 401k plans. And then just, it's so ignorant. Oliver takes her super ignorant. And so she's been annoying lately. So, and then there's that guy from California who's like very strong anti-Bitcoin. I think his name's like Ron something. Brad Sherman. Brad Sherman. Brad Sherman. That's the it. worst. That guy's that guy's just that guy's just the worst. And so those are those are probably my two worst ones. So here's an interesting thing. I've been on a big kick of OpenSecrets.org, which is essentially will tell you who donated, how much, to what. What politician? Interestingly, Elizabeth Warren's top donor is the University of California, so the UC school system. Pro educators, pro teachers, kind of makes sense. I don't know what MJ for Texas is. Then you got Google, some foundation, another foundation, Democracy Engine, Harvard, UMD College Park. She gets a lot of donations from the education space, it seems like. She also gets donations from... University of Washington, City University of New York, State University of New York, California State University. Like, at no point is any Massachusetts educational institution, with the exception of Harvard, on this list. Really makes you wonder. Yeah. Quite frankly, also to answer your question, Sam, of like who's paying her, giving her money, I was actually kind of expecting to see more banks on this list and I'm kind of surprised that they're not. Yeah, me too, we, actually. I mean, she's anti-Bitcoin. Does she not understand? Like, it's almost like she's pro-central banks then. That's how I see it, at least. Well, she and, comes from, like, the banking world. Yeah. Seems but, just, like, super bought, like I said. And and kind of annoying because she'll, she'll write, like, a letter and she'll – her and these other senators will write it and it'll be full of misinformation and they'll they'll quote the digiconomist about the the energy and and those his model is completely flawed it's been completely debunked like for instance when china banned 50 percent of the hash rate the electricity consumption index that the digiconomist uses it went up during that period so just think about that <laughs> like that's how flawed that metric is and that's what's always referred to that's the one that looks at you know Bitcoin transactions somehow creating energy footprint or carbon footprint the, the size of Sweden or whatever the hell thing. It's completely flawed, doesn't understand how Bitcoins works. And then it's almost embarrassing that they include this flawed model every single time it's, it's referenced. And then people from the industry respond with the letters point by point. It's like Brandolini's law. So it takes them a lot longer to refute their stupid ideas, but they write those letters and you just don't hear anything from them. Like they don't even recognize that that rebuttal exists. And then they just continue to write another letter about with the same misinformation, referencing the same flawed models. 
And so that's when you think about this isn't about truth. This is about agenda. I want to shift over to CPI, unless there's anything else we want to hammer home. Sam, I know you love talking politics. So is there any final points here before we finally, I don't ask any more political questions today? Well, the one thing I'll say is that the one thing that politics I think could do is just delay Bitcoin's adoption. I don't think it can do anything to really stop it. I think the game theory and and Bitcoin will just continue to seep into the mind share, but they can make things hard for the short term. But that's kind of what I would say is like Bitcoin doesn't really matter. Like it doesn't really matter for Bitcoin. TikTok next block. Love it. Love it. On the what topic of... Go wait, ahead. Who is it that said just a super like positive quote was something like the world will not be free until the last politician is strangled with the entrails of the last priest or something like that (laughs) who said that i don't know it was one of the teletubbies it was was one of the teletubbies (laughs) got it all right sorry let's let's keep going moving on to more government i i guess misinformation if you will i asked sam at the very beginning what is your definition definition of a recession well we have the new CPI numbers, 8.5% inflation, which is down from last month's reading of 9.1 year over year, but still 8.5% inflation. That's my initial thoughts. Sam, what are your initial thoughts when you saw the CPI numbers? I kind of expected it. I I mean, things were running really hot and you started to see energy prices start to fall, the price of oil is falling, gasoline's falling. So that's what kind of led a lot of these decreases in prices. And so it was expected, but I mean, it's encouraging. I, I, I think inflation's really harmful for for a lot of people especially the poorest amongst us so i was encouraged by it and in terms of the fed i mean they have to be happy about it it was the largest month over month change since april 2020 so you got to think about the rate of change when you when you think about this yes it's at 8.5 percent still and it's absolutely nuts that that people are happy about that, but it could be 9.5%, right? So it's a positive direction. Do I think it's peaked? I'm very hesitant to say that because I think a lot of this is structural and you know, tomorrow something could happen geopolitically and, and it could cause all kinds of issues. So, But right now it could be the Fed might kind of pump the brakes a little bit because obviously they talked about how important inflation was getting inflation under control. Now the Fed futures are estimating that they'll do a 50 bips cut instead of a 75 bips, which before this inflation print, that was the big, everyone thought it would be a 75 bips rate hike next September. And so it's, it's encouraging, but it kind of goes back to the labor data. Like obviously everyone talks about CPI, how much bullshit that is. It's just another metric that can be manipulated. And the perfect example of that is the owner's equivalent rent, which measures the shelter component of the CPI and makes up 30% of the weighting of the CPI and the owner's equivalent rent. Can you explain that in a little bit more detail? How is that calculated? The owner's equivalent rent is a very indirect measurement of basically rent. It looks at the owners and it, it basically just tries to guesstimate using a couple different factors or, or inputs of what the rent increases have been for the owners. So like how much they charge for the rent instead of how much the renters are actually experiencing on the ground. And when you look at Redfin or, or Zillow, some of these other measurements of rent, it estimates that rent is increased on average 14% year over year, not 5.3%. So it's an absolute joke. It underestimates the shelter component and it's, it's the largest weighting of the CPI. But so Sam, why, why would they do that? Why would they not be interested in having like a super accurate measure of you know 
inflation? That's a it's a it's a great question, and this isn't you know people have again just like the birth death factor in the payroll survey, people have been talking about how silly the owner's equivalent rent is in the CPI basket for decades. I mean, it just doesn't accurately. If you look at the Case Shiller price index, which is just a measure of you know tries to measure average house prices against the owner equivalent rent, they should probably track each other pretty closely, right? But you don't see that. Like, for instance, in, in 2008 or 2007, when house prices were crashing, the owner's equivalent rent was just kind of like barely rolling over. <laughs> Obviously, you would think it would crash over. Similar now, the Case uh, Shiller price index for housing hit an all-time high in May, but you're seeing the owner's equivalent rent just kind of staying flat. And, and so you, they basically neuter um, the changes in housing. And, and then my, my thing about the CPI too is, is the Fed looks at the core PCE, not the headline CPI. A lot of the media focuses on the headline CPI, but the Fed looks at the core PCE and the, or the core CPI, but mostly the core PCE. And that takes out food and energy. And Jerome Powell says like, yeah, but we look at the core PCE because that's a more accurate measure for how people are feeling on the ground. And I'm like, please explain that to me. Because if you take out food and energy, which is most people's essential, you know, living what they have to spend money on, and you take that out, which they've all they've both been at crazy highs over year over year, both the food prices and the fuel prices. How is that more accurate measured how people are feeling on the ground? It's just the Fed is completely stuck in its models. It is completely disconnected from the real world. And it's the groupthink that has been plaguing that institution for decades. And so they think that the core PC is better. That That's coming out soon. The core CPI also was a good number. It dropped below estimates, but it just goes to show you, like it, you have to look into how these numbers are calculated, all of them, because a lot of them are, there's funny business. <laughs> there's funny business going on. I want to break this down because you know, there's also the fact that oil has been the largest component of driving inflation higher with the largest amount of gains, but we don't see the housing market cooling down. We're getting reports that rent has only continued to go higher all, all over the place. Food prices are slowly starting to creep up as well. Like, are we seeing the effects of like, the high oil now trickle into other sectors or are we going to see a slowdown in all of these prices. Because the only way we get deflation is not if we get 6% inflation reads next month. It's if we get negative inflation reads. Like, let me rephrase. Do you think getting to a point of deflation is realistic in the future for America? Oh, yeah. I mean, you've seen that in the past. I mean, it could flip negative pretty quickly because, you know, I think in markets, it's just steps on the way up and escalators on the way down. Same thing happened when you have a huge deflationary impulse. And you have to understand that, like, it's important to recognize that CPI is a backward looking metric and oil is a leading metric, and as well as housing. Both are leading indicators. And so I would actually argue that we're seeing a ton of weakness in, in the housing sector. So, you know, last month, existing home sales declined for the fifth consecutive month, and it's down 21% year to date. So that's existing home sales. New home sales fell 8% month over month. It was estimated or expected to be 6%. So huge miss there. They're down 29% since January. And, and you're seeing a ton of weakness, you know, 
the National Association of Realtor CEO basically said we're headed for a housing recession. And it's because housing is not affordable anymore. These mortgage payments with these the aggressive interest rate hikes and the mortgage rates has made housing extremely unaffordable, unaffordable for these people. It's actually the most unaffordable housing has ever been. And that just can't last. That's not sustainable. So housing is a really good leading indicator for the business cycle. It, it's, it's where most people's net worth are tied up. Once that rolls over, it, it typically leads a recession. And, the, and once uh, housing starts to rebound at the bottom of a recession, it, it typically leads us out of a recession. And so right now, the last month and the last really two or three months, we've seen the housing sector start to roll over. And I think it's about time. It made no sense, right? You, you know, it's, it's just simply not affordable for these people and people need to live in houses. And so in the, according to Redfin, I think in the 25% of sellers cut their prices across 75% of the metro markets that they look at last month. So they're starting to cut, cut their prices because people aren't buying them anymore. So demand's slowing. And so that's what I expect to happen with this, with this housing market. It's a leading indicator. Same with oil, you know, oil, the high oil prices, sky high oil prices of the last five months have trickled on into these businesses and hurt their profits. And we're starting to see that now, but not now oil's kind of falling off a cliff. So it's, it's dropped under 90 yesterday and it's starting, and that's also a leading indicator. So that's why people are saying like, you know, you, you can look at this one payrolls number and say, we're not in a recession. You can look at one, uh, the unemployment number and say, we're not at a recession. Uh, but to me, uh, all these other economic data points are pointing to that as, as I don't want to be the bearer of bad news or be bearish, but you know, it, it, it's just not a good look. And, and, and honestly, I think we need it. So it's, it's kind of like we need a recession to kind of clean up the excess and, and help out the people who don't own assets and, and make prices cheaper for them. And that's what recessions do. So I want to also just throw out a couple other one fact and one question to follow up on just this real estate conversation, but Wells Fargo, which is the third largest mortgage lender in the country, laid off a significant portion of their home lending division earlier this year. They continue to have layoffs as well. So that's not a sign that the housing market isn't, or at least mortgages are looking strong or viable investment. I do want to caveat though, and kind of ask, we're still seeing houses sell for significant amounts higher than the asking price, which is not normal. I say normal because like I, I buy and sell homes so often that like I understand the inner workings of the real estate market to make such a bold claim like that. Um, I was having a conversation at dinner again last night just about the idea of like, is our generation just never going to own a home? To which I say, yes, we will never own a home. BlackRock is going to be your landlord and you're going to be happy about the bugs you eat. Like realistically... What like what is your expectation for real estate for our generation? Like fuck these old people who've ruined it all. Like let's talk our generation. How are we scheming to get a house here? I mean, <laughs> like P P's generation really <laughs> fucked us. <laughs> I, I I think you're I think you're spot on with BlackRock. BlackRock just opened like the largest real estate fund ever to start buying up houses on the cheap in anticipation for a coming housing recessions. So I think they see the writing on the wall right now, at least temporarily for these housings as well. I, honestly, 
with housing, I mean, Bitcoin, I, <laughs> I think holding the right money will help you afford the assets you want in the future, what you need. Like, I, I really think that the path to home ownership for a lot of these really young people are holding a better money like Bitcoin that can increase in purchasing power. And then you could perhaps, I know it's heresy, but sell some Bitcoin to buy a <gasps> home. <laughs> he did not. Yeah. To, well, I guess you could, I guess you could take out a loan against the Bitcoin. Corey, you know, come get your boy. Come get your hands. <laughs> it is real estate is kind of a shit coin sometimes, uh, but you do need to live in a house. And if, if you wanted to buy a, a cool farm or something, get more self-sustainable and, you know, if you're going to sell Bitcoin, you might as well do it like a nice house with like a farm and, and you could do these, like, you know, live a nice life in the, in the countryside. So it's not something I'm going to do, but I'm just saying, like, I think that's a path to home ownership for, for these young people, as well as I guess they could just like invest in other things besides Bitcoin, but I don't really see the asymmetric opportunity elsewhere that Bitcoin can provide. And then, yeah. you know, home ownership, home ownership. The one thing that this is going to do, it's going to bring families together, generations together. And people, like they're already doing that with like young people living at home. So I think the people that are going to own homes as young people, it's going to come from inheritance, unfortunately. But probably most people. Damn. So I'm never going to get a home. My dad told me once he was never well, going to get a Well, do you hold Bitcoin, man? <laughs> well, are you bearish? <laughs> Well, clearly not enough. I'm, now I'm I have sell, to calculate like, selling my Bitcoin. I that mean, was not part I, of the calculation. I have to sell, like one percent of my stack to buy a nice house one day. I mean, it's gonna be it's gonna be nice. Man, you must have a really big stack. No, I'm just you know one sat's gonna be the amount right. of value packed into that man. Sam, Sam has finally admit that he is one of the whales. So just know <laughs> that about Sam Callahan. <laughs> right. <laughs> Quinn mortgage too. That's a good point. Let us start the first Bitcoin mortgage in Canada. So you could do something I mean, like that. I mean, we could do we could do a fun little thought experiment because I did not feel like I got a, an answer that I, oh, actually, yeah, I kind of did. But like the entire real estate market in general, <laughs> yeah, we will never own a home. The entire Dude, you're just estate, bearish. You're bearish on Bitcoin. I, I it's okay. I, I, it's I'm right. going to ask a really bearish question. I, I will ask a bearish question because I, so- Real estate was designed to build off of this inflationary monetary system that we have. Like it just, real estate's value goes up until it reaches a point where it's actually unattainable for those who are trying to start out, unlike the way it was 50 years ago. Why then, when we have these conversations around, well, eventually like all of the store of value money that's tied up in real estate will will move over to Bitcoin. But that, that has to be a good value proposition. So. The value proposition, in my opinion, has to be the real estate market has turned into a deflationary market. How do we make something deflationary? Introduce technology into it. What are the two components of real estate? The land itself and the manufacturing building of the home. I know for certain the manufacturing side, that once 3D printing like really ramps up to the point where you have like livable things, like boom, you are manufacturing homes at a much faster pace than how long it took my dad to build the house that they live in now. The other side of that question, though, is how do we make land much like how does technology and land mesh to then make land deflationary? The idea that was brought up to me by CK was the, the fact that technology can and should make in inhabitable land 
more desirable and hab- habitable. Habitable. I don't know. I'm trying trying to throw out some words that I don't really use. So fumbling yeah. a little bit. What are other ways, in your opinions, that we can create deflation in real estate? Because that's the only way we get to that point where Bitcoin is absorbing the store of value money. You're not if you own one house, you don't care if the value of the house goes down. If you're able to afford that mortgage rate, you're going to keep paying it. You're not going to go park that money elsewhere. But it's those families that have two, three people who have eight, nine different properties. If the value proposition is no longer there where, hey, if I just hold this for 20 years, it'll go up. That may not be the case. Where's the next thing to go? Bitcoin. So how do we get there? I, I've kind of presented to the two of you. Yeah. It's, it's, well, first, I, I the 3D printing houses. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting idea. I feel and so bad for my dad who's a contractor. Like that. That's his career. Yeah. Just no, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. Huge 3D printing. Yeah. I mean, I, cool. I think it'll be, it will be an important part of it, but I think we're a long, long way off totally. from having like totally. robots Same. that can descend. I mean, like, and, and the, I feel like if that was going to be the case, we would still be like, everybody would be living in like, what are they not? Is it mobile homes? Like, like the things mm-hmm. you just sort of like partition out. Uh, like that'll be the first iterations of it. Like you see all these like smaller homes, like Elon Musk touting like, oh yeah, I live in this like box that I can just like pay $5 million to move to wherever I want. Like you should just own one of these types of boxes too. Like that will be the first iteration of, oh, this one was built by a 3D printer. Uh, like, it does oh, sound kind of whole- fiat. Sounds super fiat. Like, also, you know, it's like the architecture, like the architecture, the beauty. Is everyone just in these like stupid boxes and it looks Wait, like Wait, I mean let's let's be real though. <laughs> Houses are not like marbles of modern architecture. Like you go look at any modern house and it's like <laughs> might as well like fall out of the sky. But yeah, that's um, true. I don't know, man. I walk I walk around Nashville and I could tell the houses that are newer and older. Oh absolutely. And I definitely I definitely like the newer ones. They don't oh, look no, no, like they're sure. beat up and destroyed. For sure. But it's not like this house was made by an artisan who hand flourished like <laughs> each right, eve. You, you got you gotta come to LA. You gotta come to LA. I mean, yeah, houses are houses. Well, Marble so Chris structures. is finally admitting how rich he is because he's got fucking marble statues up in his house. So clearly, we're doing it all wrong. And whatever Chris does is what we should all be doing. Which, by the way, Chris does own his home in Peep. I uh, doxed you forever. I will say, like in terms of the deflation, like so right now, real estate just used as a pseudo store of value because the money is broken. And as as Bitcoin comes into view with the deflationary nature, if you study like when money dies and and when they're all denominated in dollars, all these houses, all these mortgages, you should just see price deflation across the board as anything denominated in dollars just gets wiped out in value. And so anybody who holds Bitcoin, everything's going to get cheaper for them. And so I think that goes for houses, but it goes for land, too. And then in terms of the land, the technology, Bitcoin is a technology, but it's it's only one technology and it's going to mix with the confluence of game-changing technologies. It's going to be AI, machine learning, 3D printing, Bitcoin, all combining together to bring us forward with innovation in agriculture and all kinds of things like that. So that's kind of what I think about in terms of like you better just not be denominating everything in dollars, including your mortgage. Because again, in in Weimar, Germany, or any of these hyperinflationary events, the people that store their wealth in real estate, it just got wiped out. 
It just got completely wiped out because it was denominated in the currency that was failing. And so th that's how I think it's going to play out. And that's why trying to make this bridge between Bitcoin now to try to prevent that from happening to a lot of good people is, is why I think we do what we do in terms of education. Yeah, well said. Am I, unmuted? Am I still muted? No, you're good. Sorry, I guess I was mouth breathing again. Sorry, guys. P, why is it that even after 150 years on Earth, you don't own a home? Homes are expensive <laughs> as fuck, man. Yeah, I like have always been, I've had this like atavistic terror around debt, which is to my significant detriment, right? We talked about this before, but when I when I went to college, I got accepted to a number of like, you know, well-known, smaller universities. And I was like, no, I don't want to go to those because I don't want to take on any debt. And so I went to like a state school instead. And in retrospect, especially since like now, like, you know, apparently fucking all student debt is going to be forgiven or some shit. That was a mistake. And I think it's the same thing around like mortgages. Like there are times, many times when, you know, taking on a mortgage, it's like one of the best deals you can get, you know, 30 year fixed rate mortgage. Like, come on, let's go. But yeah, I'd rather have Bitcoin. Bitcoin daddy said, like, why wouldn't you want to own dollar denominated debt? And he's kind of right. Like, I guess what I meant with that real estate was when people have their net worth side in equity in that stuff. That's that's the people that get wiped out. If you have a giant mortgage and you paid like minimum amount of it and then the money dies. Yeah, you, you basically just got like a house <laughs> for free almost if you just have a huge amount of debt. So that's a important distinction. Ooh, ooh, so what you're saying is if you time your mortgage purchase right. And like just, you know, the collapse of the dollar happens shortly after I close the deal for my mega mansion that in no way I can afford. Like theoretically speaking, no one can collect those dollars because the dollar is worthless. And therefore this this house which we've agreed upon, I now I am the owner of. Yeah. I am the captain. I mean, I, that's the perverse incentives of the the current system is it actually wants you to go into more debt. <laughs> like even though it's irresponsible to get that million dollar home if you timed it perfectly and then the money starts to devalue at a rapid pace, yeah, that's, that's actually kind of smart. It's the same thing why it's not smart to pay off your student loans, really, even though it's the responsible thing to do historically. Yes, thank you, someone gets it. Well, it's the right thing to do historically. I'm not saying like everyone's unique, so just do whatever you wanna do in terms of your own risk tolerance and stuff like that. But at the current inflation rate and where the dollar is likely headed, it's kind of silly to spend all your, you know, disposable income and just put it towards paying down this massive debt that's likely going to get cheaper over time because of the dynamics of just the system. And that's the perverse system because it, it should reward you for doing the right thing and paying back your debts. That's just, that's just what, like if I lent you a hundred bucks Q or whatever, it, it should reward me for paying you off sooner. Like I, I'm like, that's the right thing to do, you know, pay back what you, you borrowed, but now it's the opposite. So yeah, that's a good point too. Credit score goes down when you paid off quickly. But yeah, anyway, that's that's how I see the, the those things. <laughs> cool. I'm gonna quickly scheme how to continue to further destroy the fiat debt cycle by taking full advantage of it while it exists. Which I think quite frankly, everyone should be doing. I actually think if everyone aped in and like really push the limits of this fiat debt system to like the outer bounds, like it would implode upon itself. <laughs> Shut up. 
Go away, Chris. <laughs> Go away. Chris, our producer is putting in the chat. Go back to college Q and just buy Bitcoin instead. Dude. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. Um, Sam, I want to ask, shifting topic slightly, I like to ask everyone, like, what are areas of Bitcoin that you are particularly excited about? What are some of the technological, cultural, educational resources that you are, yeah, that have got you excited right now? Usually, what gets me really excited always is just how having a money that you can save on the, the second and third order effects of what that means for society to be able to save money and, and invest and not, not feel like you're on a hamster wheel and you have to be not only make the money through working, but then maintain the money by investing it correctly to fight inflation. What that means is that if you have a money that you can save in, you can start to focus your attention elsewhere and not have to worry about it being devalued. And so you don't have to be an expert in investing, you don't have to look at charts, you don't have to do these things. So it frees up your time to do what you want to do in terms of hobbies, in terms of arts. Like I, I do see this scenario that a long time down the road where, where Bitcoin will kind of bring in this renaissance era where people are more focused and similar to the renaissance period before when they had a stable form of money, it kind of allowed that to happen. And so to think about what that would look like with the technology we have as well. That gets me really excited from just like a more big picture thing. In terms of like the building that's been occurring in the in the current bear market, uh, you know, some of these things that recently came out like Keat and Vince and, and all these technologies that are gonna make self-custody easier, potentially, it's still kind of early days there. Light Network, I'm super excited about just the growth there. Anything that kind of adds functionality while maintaining the, the base layer, its consensus mechanism by preserving that, but then building on top of that in layers of functionality, that gets me really excited because it, it just shows that Bitcoin is software that will continuously upgrade and improve over time. And to see more innovation in anything that makes self-custody easier, that makes medium exchange easier, that makes the UX UI easier for individuals. That's the stuff that gets me excited. And it's, it's, I think it's what you should be focusing on instead of just looking at the price, because it's really, it's, it's quite on the edge of, of technological innovation, I think so. I'll accept your answer. Correct. Correct. I also like just institutional adoption. I keep, I keep a pretty close eye on the intersection of traditional finance and Bitcoin. There's a lot of talk, of debate about whether it's good or bad, but I think it's important because I think most normies are going to get access to it. And I think it's just important to understand how to do that the right way where they're holding their own keys and they're actually holding Bitcoin and not some IOU. But like, for instance, it's like BlackRock News. It's like, yeah, I was going to ask. It's such a, it's like, obviously, BlackRock being the largest asset manager, it's a big win for Bitcoin in terms of it probably won't get banned by the government because the BlackRock just controls the government, I feel like, and regulators. And so from that standpoint, it's good, but it's really, it's not real Bitcoin. It's just an IOU. And, uh, and so from that standpoint, it's not that great. And it could be, it could lead to externalities where you're cheering it on now and then five years down the road, you're like, oh, that actually was pretty bad development. And so I, I keep a really close eye on the intersection and adoption of things like that as well. Yeah. I mean, I think 
I think we, the ship, the ship of, or the idea that uh, you know the government will like ban Bitcoin. I think that has sailed long ago, to be honest. But I think that the risk is this continued sort of capture of Bitcoin. You know, like this is a regulatory capture, the KYC capture, and so I see that being the kind of potential dark path that we have to resist. And I think you know, it, it, speaking to what you just said, I think the most important thing is that we are creating educational tools and encouraging people to understand why it is important to custody their own Bitcoin. And I imagine yeah. places like BlackRock are going to, and you know, Coinbase are, for various, for very obvious reasons, are going to actively disincentivize that kind of learning and, and behavior. It's one of the things I think is interesting about Swan is that you know, Swan's great yes. about forcing people to understand that, or as they're ready to. Yeah, and, and we try to just push people to self custody. I mean, all the time if we can. It's literally half of our education is just trying to push people to that because I think people are kind of afraid. But I see people saying like, fuck banks and all those things and I, and I kind of understand the sentiment. But Bitcoin's for enemies, man, and it's happening whether you like it or not. And it's onboarding thousand credit unions and banks and allowing their, their technology, they're building the technology infrastructure to allow these banks to provide coin exposure directly into their banks. And so this is happening whether, whether Bitcoiners like it or not. It's just a matter of education and trying to make sure that people understand what they own and what kind of Bitcoin they own. Because obviously there's a big difference between owning real spot Bitcoin and holding your own private keys and then owning these like pseudo Bitcoins. Yeah, that's one of the hardest things I find to explain to people because people are so used to everything already being an IOU. They're like, well, I mean, I have stocks. I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't own those stocks. You don't own those equities. It's an IOU for the stock. And with Bit, you know, when you try to explain to people the idea that with Bitcoin you can take full custody of it, that can be a challenge sometimes. But I feel like with things like Celsius, it, it becomes easier to frame it in a way that people get. You know, most people are shocked that you know places like Celsius and have gone up, and then just you just can't get your your assets anymore. They're like, but this is America, and it's like, no, no, no. You signed on the dotted line. You should have read more carefully. This is what it means. Yeah. Yeah, Bitcoin maxis for being all toxic for a reason, I guess. I think that's an important point with the stocks and the IOUs too, because that's actually with real estate as well. We talked about real estate before. It's a big difference between owning Bitcoin and, and real estate because you, you kind of don't really own the real estate. You own a deed given to you by the government and it's a highly illiquid asset. Whereas Bitcoin, I feel totally comfortable having my net worth in my head with, with 12 words that I actually own. And same thing with stocks. Like you said, you just own an IOU to a brokerage who owns an IOU to the DTCC. You're in this like chain of ownership and you're way at the bottom. Whereas Bitcoin, you actually own it. And it's actually what makes Bitcoin so important and the final bearer instrument. Yeah, Kessler said it. So that's a huge difference between real estate and, and why people, I think, say Bitcoin's or real estate's a shit coin. Because again, when you read through these really troubling times in history when, when currencies fail, real estate doesn't really work that well in that environment, especially if you own land. If you own actually productive land, it typically gets taken over by the government, especially if there's some kind of food crisis, because they basically just take it over and say, hey, we have a food crisis. We don't care that you own this farm. We're going to take it over. We're going to We'll buy it from you, quote unquote, even if you don't like it. And there's nothing you can really do about that because it's illiquid. It's not like you can pick up your house and move it or move the land. And so important distinction. It's one of those ones where, again, people in the West don't really think about it. People in hard emerging market economies instantly understand this stuff because they've lived through it. I want to explore 
we talk a lot on this show, mind you, nothing we have said is financial advice. Yes, I did tell you to go rob a bank if you're under 18 naked. That is not financial <laughs> advice. But and none none of what we have said or will say should be construed as such. The Bitcoin IOUs, super, super important. All that reads like is fractional reserve banking has entered the or has existed within the Bitcoin exchange system. And it's not some new phenomenon. I'm curious both of your thoughts. Like, is this a necessary evil? Like, will it continue to be practiced, fractional reserve banking, in the eyes of through the, through exchanges with Bitcoin, or will that practice come to a stop at some point in the future? Can you repeat the question? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Q. Like, do you think... I'll back it up a little bit. So I think that there, I fully believe that if everyone went on all exchanges right now to withdraw Bitcoin, there is not enough Bitcoin in circulation and that some people are going to get rugged because there are too many Bitcoin IOUs out there because of fractional reserve banking. Do you think that this is a system that's going to continue to exist within the Bitcoin ecosystem or will eventually it have to stop after one too many rug bulls? I think, I mean, it should stop. I mean, it depends how much pain people, a lot of people need to learn the hard way, unfortunately. Like you can try to educate them. You can try to say all these things and, and warn them. But I think a lot of people are just going to have to learn the hard way. And so uh, I think you'll have waves of this, of people learning and people learning and people learning. Maybe one day people will get it. I think there's incentive from the incumbents to want a big IOU system to basically potentially be able to manipulate the Bitcoin price easier. Now, I think there's differences between Bitcoin and gold because this is what happened to gold, right? The IOU market became so large and it kind of suppresses the spot market. And I think Bitcoin, the fact that you can take self-custody of it so easily as well as its volatility makes it extremely difficult to short Bitcoin to with cash settled futures contracts. And so it makes it really dangerous to try to suppress the price of Bitcoin C can shoot up and blow these positions out, whereas gold is a lot less volatile. So it's more easier to do that with an IOU market. And so I think over time, there's going to be this dynamic where there's going to be incumbents that are trying to push these IOU Bitcoins, these fake, fake Bitcoin. But we'll see if, if retail and people over time, as they keep getting burned and burned and burned, will start to value self-ownership and, and taking ownership of their private keys more and more. So I'm kind of optimistic. I think I think people will start to understand this because it's really a reflection of the environment there. And it's a, it's a product of the environment of if we, if we continue to get more financial warfare and censorship and, and seizures against the citizens of sovereign nations, kind of like what we saw in Canada, more and more people are going to wake up to the the value proposition of holding your own key. And so I do think that over time, just because I think the traditional financial system will be more aggressive towards individuals, I think more and more people will get it. And so that's my hope at least. It's fair. I, I hope to be the general manager of the Los Angeles Lakers one day too. So I, I hope that comes true. <laughs> I'll be the I, Bulls. My Bulls will take the Lakers, dude. Oh, I'll see you in the finals, my friend, just in like 40 years. Yeah. I'm going to play the contrarian bastard, as Anthony Scaramucci famously called me, but like, 
I don't buy that, Sam. I think there's a little bit of naivety to believe that every single person is going to understand, want, and like putting the work to actually self custody. And I think that there will be opportunities for different services, no different than swans and others that we're not even thinking about yet that will come up to say like, actually, let me hold it on your behalf. And they could be legit services like Unchained, or they could be pure scams like Celsius. Like I just, I don't see those offerings going away. So I actually think there's going to be this moment or window of opportunity. What is it on those businesses, no different than Swan or Unchained, when they are going to offer clients the opportunity to hold their Bitcoin on their behalf? Like what is it on, and I'm not trying to get you in trouble with Swan to like say say anything right or wrong here, more from the lens of like, what is your responsibility as a business in that situation where people are entrusting you to be sort of the de facto self-custody person in this scenario? Well, I think the the first thing is education. So it's not the it's not the the best way to do it, right? So I mean it's not ideal for anybody or any trusted third party as well intentioned as they are. There's risks. And so you shouldn't trust anybody with your Bitcoin. So the first thing is education and just being very, very clear about that. Now, if somebody's like, No, I do not want it, like I don't care what you say, blah, blah, blah. What you can do is is obviously not rehypothecate the funds don't do anything with the funds don't even allow yourself access to the funds and so swan has like zero access to it it's it's held in a trust under their name and so they have legal rights to the actual spot bitcoin and and there's no funny business going on in, behind the scenes like some of these other firms and then there's also just like making sure that you have the security that you can possibly offer 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 for your clients and so it's really about like it's making sure that they understand like, okay, we get it. Like you, you don't want the hassle of taking your own keys. You don't want to take that risk, but that's wrong. Like you should, you should take it. You should not trust us with it. But if they, they insist on it, then we have to provide them with the top of the line security and then protect them, their Bitcoin from everybody else, like including ourselves. So giving them legal access or, or rights to it and all these like other things and protections in place to, to protect their sats essentially. But I do think, I think, I think Q, like, I think we can't even begin to think about what self-custody is going to look like in the years to come. Like, I think it's going to, I believe that innovation is going to keep growing and that it's going to be so much easier to take your self-custody or Bitcoin in the future. I think right now we're in this period of the early days of, of tough UI and I think it'll be very, very easy in the future. At least I hope so. So that's kind of like a pushback to your comment about the naivety like we don't know what it's going to look like we don't know 15 years 20 years what these tools are going to look like on bitcoin or with bitcoin with self-custody what companies are going to exist you know it might be look back and be insane to think about even like multi-sig like oh my god i can't believe we did that because there's so much better tools in the future that we can't even fathom right now i totally agree with that that's why i'm very careful to say something like everyone won't self-custody because I kind of feel like that's that same argument where people try to say like, oh, everyone's not going to run their own node. Yeah. Well, you know what? Someone also said everyone's not going to route the internet through their home one day or not everyone's going to have electricity in their home. So I'm careful to not say like, oh, they're not going to go for the technology, but I think there is an inherent laziness in our society 
where if there's an offering where it's like, oh, I don't have to memorize 12 words. Sure. Why not? Like it's going to make my life easier. Yeah. Uh, I hear that. I hear that. It's hard to, it's hard to think about the future, what it's going to look like. I, I hope it's easier though. I think it's a, I think it's an important thing to improve upon. This is why like, you know, I'm, I'm still reading about it, but like Fediments, it's, it's just like another example of, of innovation occurring in the custody space. Like who knows if that's the thing or if that's, if that's going to play out the way people think it is, but it could, it could make things a lot easier and, and just offer a different option for people. That's a little better than, than just like trusted third parties. So we have some breaking news right now, but Bitcoin has solved a problem in the world. P, if, you, if you'd like to share. Yeah, absolutely. The city is mowing the grass like directly outside my window. And in the chat, I, in the private chat, I asked like, does Bitcoin fix this? And the answer was maybe. We, tur- we took my mic, my mic off mute and you guys can't apparently hear it. So as I said, <laughs> privately to Q, thank you for airing our dirty laundry. Bitcoin really can't fix anything. As I said, the wealthy benefactor P, Bitcoin fixes this. When you give someone 100 Bitcoin to shut up, they'll shut up. So that worked. Bitcoin fixed it. I don't understand the, the, the entire premise we just went through, but I'm going to take it. I'm going to take it. I'm, I'm trying to start a thing where you're just a wealthy benefactor. Yeah, great. I, I sh- Yeah, why not? Why not? <laughs> I mean, dog food over here and, you know, I just do it for, for the shits and giggles. <laughs> Sam, one of the things that I have that I think is really interesting about Bitcoin is, of course, we all come to Bitcoin from very different perspectives. And a lot of the things that we explore and do outside of Bitcoin tend to inform our experience of and understanding of Bitcoin, even though it might seem at first glance like they would have nothing to do with each other. I'm curious, for me, you know, I, 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 one of the things I studied was biology. And so I have, I, I really kind of get obsessed with like biological systems and feedback and, and feedback loops and things like that. And I find that that applies in many ways where it affects my thinking on Bitcoin. I'm curious, what are some of the things that you that you're interested in that have affected your thinking on bitcoin as you're you know going through and doing your analysis for for swan yeah i so i studied biology too so i would actually say the same thing i was a biology and physics major and i studied anatomy and i have a doctorate in physical therapy so no shit I, I did a, all right yeah so i did I did a lot of, you know, understanding the same thing, just complex systems and feedback loops. And so when I, when I came across Bitcoin, it just made a lot of sense to me as something that it's like, people call it like an organism because it's like steady. There's like a process to it. And there's a, it reminded me of like a cell, like a mitochondria and like all these things that I learned about in biology, but that was part of it for sure. I, I think like my studying of the traditional financial set, like on my free time, like I just like understood immediately that Bitcoin was the solution because I had studied the problem very deeply. And so that was a huge part. Like I, I just immediately knew that a, my money that had an absolute scarcity that couldn't be manipulated and couldn't be censored and that acted outside the traditional financial system. Like I understood how important that was because I had studied the central banking system for years before that. So yeah, like everything you think about like how you come to bitcoin and how it, it it's funny like i've also had this like rebellious streak my whole life of not of like not accepting what i was told and, and just like when, when i question things in class or or always kind of try to think differently 
And that's just kind of like naturally who I was. And I, I find that a lot in, in Bitcoiners. And I don't really know what that's about. But when I came to Bitcoin and everyone else was doubting it, for me, I just wanted to run to it. And I wanted to try to learn why everyone was hating on it so much. And, and, and I just have always been that way. So same thing when I was in business, because I was actually a business major and I left business to go to biology because I was questioning the Keynesianism so much. And I didn't know about Austrian economics at the time, but my professors just hated me because I kept asking questions about how stupid these like Keynesian principles were and they didn't really have good answers for me. And so then I, I left because I was like, this is bullshit. Like this is, this business classes are bullshit. I don't really understand. And biology made sense to me and physics made sense to me because physics is truth. Like you can't fake gravity. And, and I see that a lot of similarities between physics and biology and Bitcoin. So it's like my friend, Brandon Quidham, like, like I saw coins, a living organism. So maybe I'm just influenced by Brandon too. We're pretty close at Swamp. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So as we wind down, Sam, we talked about a lot of things that we wanted to talk about. We talked about a lot of things that you did not want to talk about. And I appreciate you as always for entertaining my rambling tangents of a mad scientist but is there anything that we didn't get a chance to touch on today that you're like yo let's talk about this for a little bit well the thing that i've been focusing on in my writing has been the euro the euro is a shit coin like i just can't even tell you what problem that that currency is right now and uh, i i really went into a deep dive into the history of the euro similarities between now and the european debt crisis of 2012 and right now, man, they, they, that's the second largest currency by trading volume, as well as central bank foreign currency reserves. And it is, it's in a really precarious situation right now. And you have to think about Bitcoin. Bitcoin's competition isn't Ethereum. It's not these other cryptocurrencies. To me, it's, it's, it's fiat currencies and the main money that's used around the world. And so Euro is the second largest one. And I, I just can't even tell you like what, what a problem it is. And it's going to be, I think it's going to be devalued again. I think there's nothing they can do to stop the money printers from going burn, burr over there. And, and we're talking about a monetary union of 19 nations that are at risk of fragmenting if, if they don't really toe the line and, and walk on a balance rope to try to figure this thing out. And so that's the one area that, that we didn't touch on that I've been pretty passionate about reading into a, I'm just reading a lot of books on the euro and it's a shit coin, man. <laughs> it's a terrible, it reminds me of a shit coin. It reminds me of Ethereum because, because it, they just like throw like the, the, every time they do something, they have an emergency measure and then there's some other problem that that emergency measure causes. And then they have to do another bandaid fix and then another bandaid fix and another bandaid fix. And that's, that's been going on for 20 years, at least since its existence. And it's kind of reaching this like pivotal moment right now. That's the one thing that we didn't touch on. There was a tweet, I believe you sent it out, that was from a former U.S. either Fed chairman or Treasury Secretary mm -hmm. back in the 90s when, when the euro was formed. And it really foreshadowed a lot of what we're seeing now. Do you want to, am, am I correct in saying that that was something you tweeted out? Do you know what yeah, I'm yeah. About? That was, so when the euro was being designed, this was also designed in the Bank of International Settlements. So just another example of how the bid kind of controls everything. 
but there was multiple major economists at the time, including Milton Friedman. And what you're, you're referring to is Martin Feldstein, who was a Harvard economist and president of the National Bureau of Economic Research. And both of these guys were some of the biggest economists, economists at the time were warning about how bad this, this whole idea was. I mean, it, they were like adoption of the euro would exacerbate political tensions. And, and basically, these nations wouldn't have a currency to deal with exogenous shocks to their economies. And it's impossible to have a monetary union with disparate cultures, disparate economies, and disparate tax policies and fiscal policies. So that's why you're seeing you know, Italy, Greece, and uh, Spain, and all these southern countries who spend a ton of money frivolously and, and wastefully and have slow growth, high unemployment, they're under the same currency regime as Germany, who's historically very conservative and, and, and don't, doesn't spend a lot of money. But when you have these differences under one currency, simply doesn't work and actually leads to more political tension. And the reason why um, it went through wasn't because of economics. They ignored all these warnings because this was really a political construct of, of they wanted to stop potential world wars. They wanted to create union. So even a central banker by the name of Rupert Panay Ray, he said it was completely misdesigned. You know, you shouldn't create a monetary union with such disparate economies. It doesn't work. There's a lot of economists saying that, but politicians said they know better. And the politicians said we're creating history and they ignored everything. And so a lot of these underlying structural design flaws of the euro came into view in the European debt crisis 2012. They printed a ton of money, masked over all the problems. And now those same issues are coming in 2022, except that debt GDP ratios are, are nearly double across the board of all these countries, except even more. So they're in a more precarious situation. And I, I really have a hard time seeing how the euro will end or how it will like get through this and then how it won't end really violently and chaotically. And if, if the second largest fiat currency is on the verge of collapse, coiners should wake up to that fact. And I think a lot of people maybe know a little bit about it, but they don't really know the history and, and how this terrible idea it is. Sort of fucked. <laughs> At least not us. Actually, if anything, fiat cuckbuck dollars are great right now. So plan your trip to Europe by buying a ticket to Bitcoin Amsterdam. Use promo code BM Live and you'll check this <laughs> off. I have that, that no was a shame. cool commercial, by the way. I like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's been no trying to do that for, for weeks. But waiting for one guest to bring up Europe. I can't do it genuinely. So thank you, Sam. I've been waiting for a yeah, long time. Yeah, there you go, man. man. Yeah, man. Yeah, Thank man. you so much for Honestly, joining us. This is awesome. That's where you should advertise Bitcoin is, is the Europe. Is Europe. <laughs> They're going to need it. Sam, let's hand it off to you for like, where can people stay up to date with your thoughts? How can they know where you're writing? And what is Corey Klipstein's LinkedIn status for tonight going to be? Yeah, they can, they can follow me on the Swan blog. And so I write you know, I do a lot of different the newsletters, so you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter at Swan. I kind of help out with that. Daily Bitcoiner, help Corey with that. You can talk about, you can go look at the blog where I just kind of post random blogs sometimes, as well as Twitter. So I'm at, at Sam Calla, S-A-M-C-A-L-L-A-H. I'll probably be publishing my pretty big deep dive into the Euro uh probably like next week or something like that. So if you're interested in kind of hearing that, keep an eye out. I'll post it on Twitter and, and, and kind of see if you'll enjoy that. But yeah, man, just really appreciate coming on here. Check out swan.com, my shameless shill. 
I think it's a good place to dollar cost average, set up Bitcoin savings plans and, and just make sure you're stacking sats during this bear market. This is the time where you can get really good long-term uh, entry points. So that's, that's what I'll leave with. Absolutely. And last thing I'll say is like, and subscribe Bitcoin magazine, YouTube channel, all the people that are currently talking to you right now, starting with Sam Callahan, lots of signal, no noise. My friends, we'll see you tomorrow. Thanks, fellas. I'll catch you around. If you're in Nashville, come to the meetup tonight. Yes. I'm not. Are by. you guys going to be in Bitbox Boom? I will not be. I will be. Oh, that's sad. All right, cool. I'll see you, P. Q, yeah. you're a loser. Uh, <laughs> heard that one before. I love you, brother. <laughs> All right. Adios. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Hey, guys. This is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. We're going back to Miami for Bitcoin 2023. Lock in your tickets before prices go up. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets today. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today.